We're turning to Nehemiah chapter 2, and the second half of that, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed in the, the bulletin, so you can follow along there on page 3. You recall that Nehemiah had just received uh, permission from uh, the Persian king, the Persian emperor, Artaxerxes, to return uh, to Jerusalem uh, to start a rebuilding project. And so this is where we're picking up now as he, uh, as he sets off on that journey. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 2. And Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem." that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The letter came from the Navy Department in Washington, postmarked January 10th, 1870, read as follows, Sir, you are appointed to the command of an expedition to make a survey of the Isthmus of Darien to ascertain the point at which to cut a canal from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. The steam sloop Nipsic and the storeship guard will be under your command. The department has entrusted you to you a duty connected with the greatest enterprise of this present age, And upon your enterprise and your zeal will depend whether your name is honorably identified with one of the facts of the future. The letter was addressed to Commander Thomas O. Selfridge, 
who led America's first official survey uh, in Panama to see the potentiality of creating a canal there. Now, they could not possibly have prepared for the dangers of the jungle that awaited them. Selfridge's diary recorded numerous setbacks that he and his team encountered. Quote, another sleepless night due to insects. I would pack up and leave right then. Due to insects. That's Sunday, April 10th, he wrote that. One of his men recorded that it was the worst country I have ever seen or will ever see. But armed with this letter, uh, this letter, this commission from his government, and with it the reminder that previous attempts had, had failed and the desire to please his, um, his commanding officers, and I think also drawn by the allure of making a name for himself, Selfridge persisted on. You notice that in the letter. Upon your enterprise and your zeal will depend whether your name is honorably identified with one of the facts of the future. This was an inducement for him to, to carry out the work. The letter goes on. No matter how many surveys have been made or how, many, or how accurate they've been, the people of this country will never be satisfied until every point of the isthmus is surveyed by some responsible authority and by properly equipped parties such as will be under your command. Well, as we turn to the second half of uh, Nehemiah 2, we see that Nehemiah himself is sent on a surveying mission. He also has a letter from the government uh, in his pocket. The letter is not a commission filled with flattering motives for success, but more of a, a permission slip from the Persian king, which would grant Nehemiah safe passage through the regions uh, that he would have to go through to get to Judah. And although we're going to see Nehemiah face face setbacks that, that rivaled the elements of the Panamanian jungle, unlike Selfridge, he was not motivated by personal success, not by fame or glory. He was not motivated to have his name honorably identified with one of the great facts of the future, although incidentally, of course, that is what has happened since we are talking about him tonight. Rather, his motivation came outside of himself. Isn't that what he says at the conclusion of the chapter? The God of heaven will make me prosper. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I set out. Because of him. When properly understood, friends, this promise of a prospering God, the, the prospering power of God, will be enough to empower you and me to, to conquer and to overcome any obstacle that lies in our way as we seek to glorify God, to fulfill that calling which is on all of us, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is our mission. Take it from Nehemiah. This motivation will be enough. Take it from Nehemiah because he had plenty of obstacles, plenty of setbacks to accomplish this mission. Here's the first setback. Suspicious neighbors. Nehemiah has reached the province beyond the river. Uh, you'll note that that's capitalized in the Bible, beyond the river, because that's actually the name of this province. Uh, it's not describing a general region. It's, it's literally the name for the region. The river in mind is the Euphrates, and the Persian province includes Jerusalem. So a number of different um, uh, nations would have been included, but now under Persian control, they call it the province beyond the river. And Jerusalem's right at part of that. So Nehemiah, he's going from Susa, the capital of Persia, 
Uh, that's modern-day Iran. He's traveling southwest, crossing the Euphrates River, and he heads towards Jerusalem. It's a journey of 1,000 miles. And although he um, arrives on official business, proven not only by the fact that he has this letter with the, the emperor's seal, but you notice he's got this military uh, convoy escorting him. Uh, so he clearly he's on official business. Even so, he's met with suspicion by the other leaders in Beyond the River. And named at this point in our, in our text, uh, in verse 10, is Sanballat and Tobiah. Uh, Later on in the chapter, they'll be joined by Geshem from Arabia. Uh, These characters cast a dark shadow over the entirety of Nehemiah's uh, mission and ministry in Jerusalem. What's the issue with Nehemiah from their perspective? Well, they view him as a threat. Uh, They like Jerusalem reduced to rubble. There's one less um, nation we have to compete with. But if Nehemiah comes to rebuild the walls and comes with the full force of the Persian Empire behind him, well, what will that mean for them? There will be a change to their political, uh, social, economic status quo. They don't like that. They're threatened and they're on edge. Isn't that how we all are when we see the moving trucks pulling in next door? Isn't that just the worst moment? Because you know the people that are unloading those trucks and getting into the house next to you They could be the greatest thing that has ever happened to you, or the absolute worst. And you have no idea what it will be. They could be a blessing, or a terror. Neighbors. Albert Clemens, he lived in his home in Euclid, Ohio for 60 years, when suddenly, one day out of nowhere, his house was egged. And he thought, oh, this is just... A silly prank, random prank from some neighborhood punks. But it didn't stop. The egging continued. For over a year, his house was egged every single day. And nobody could figure out who was doing it. It stumped police, video surveillance, station officers. No one could catch who was doing this or where it was coming from. The eggs appeared to be launched from some device because they would be standing on the porch, on the sidewalk when it would happen, and they couldn't, there was nobody there. What's going on? They thought maybe, like even, they thought maybe 10, 12 blocks away, somebody's launching eggs at this guy. It sounds kind of funny, and it is, I think. But imagine if that was your house. It goes from funny to terrifying, doesn't it? After a year, just as mysteriously as they began, the egging stopped. But you know what else happened the same day they stopped? His neighbor directly across the street moved out of town. Well, that gave the police uh, something to go after. And indeed, after a year of evading authorities, his former neighbor, Jason Kozan, was arrested and charged with inducing panic. The reason, why did he do this? You know what he said? Because he could. Because he could. What did Clemens do to deserve this? Nothing. He just lived in the wrong house. He had the wrong neighbors. Well, is that all that's at play here? with Sambalat and company. Fear of getting a bad neighbor is going to keep them up at night with the sounds of construction, throw off their peaceful way of life. You know, that's just the surface level concern, friends. Ultimately, these men represent the world's response to the church, the world's reaction to the mission of the church. And we have that in the text. It's verse 10. It says, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That's what bothered them. 
Well, God commands us to seek the welfare of his people. Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, to buy his name, ironically, means God is good. And yet, the good of God's people is bad to Tobiah. So, this is the natural man, the unconverted man. No matter what he calls himself, he is unable to, to desire or to pursue or to promote the peace of the church. And why is that? Well, because to do so would simultaneously be to pursue and to promote his own demise. Because the world and the church are antithetical to one another. They're at enmity with one another. We're told that right in the beginning, Genesis 3, 15. The victories of the one is always at the price of the loss of the other. And so if the church fares well, Tobiah won't. So keep that in mind. Be, be ready for that kind of opposition. The world is at loggerheads with the church. The world is at enmity with you. It must be for its own survival. It has to be. And so, as we're called to do good to everyone, but especially those of the household of faith, as Galatians 6 tells us, don't expect any help or handouts from the world. Expect obstacle. Expect hardship. The next obstacle Nehemiah encounters is simply the immense workload of rebuilding the walls. That's described for us in verses 11 through 16. He surveys the city walls. Now, it's harder to know exactly all the details since we are this far removed uh, from this time period, but scholars estimate that, that the circumference of the city of Jerusalem was probably a mile and a half to two miles long. James Boyce explains that the dis- destruction was great and the stones to be reassembled were massive. This is not a case of a group of workers merely constructing a garden fence or brick wall or even a large earthwork fortification. No, the blocks that had been tumbled down into the valleys below when, when, when Jerusalem was uh, put under siege had to now be hauled back up to the site of the wall and reassembled. This required many workers, diverse skills, and even, we might suppose, a certain amount of moving machinery. The details of that will come in the next chapter, chapter 3. But the point is that Nehemiah did not have an easy task set out before him. And he likely knew that just based on the information that his brother brought him in chapter 1. But now, with this survey complete, it's, it's confirmed. But then the question I have for you, is any work of God easy? Any work for God easy? Never. Well, why not? Uh, well, work unto God is always done facing the wind and uphill. Always. Because the sin in us has this resistance to anything that's for the Lord. This is how Paul explains it in Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God... For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, we say, but are we in the flesh any longer? Aren't we creatures, new creatures in Christ? Shouldn't that mean we desire to please God and, and want to work for Him? Well, yes, it does mean that. But while God takes the man out of sin, sin is not entirely yet out of the man. So Paul says a few verses earlier, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sin is like this inertia in the soul that keeps us from excelling forward 
in our Christian life. Sin makes any work for God hard. Any work. No matter how easy it might seem on the surface. It's, it's just as hard for uh, the, the, the young boy to confess he wasn't playing fair with his sibling as it's difficult for the business executive to admit that he cheated on his taxes to the tunes of, tune of millions of dollars. They're, they're equally hard for us. Why? Because we don't want to admit we're wrong. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to confess our sin. That's hard. That goes against our instinct. Satan wants us to, to have our hands droop whenever it comes to serving God because it's such a difficult thing. And so he will make even the slightest act of godliness feel like a mountainous and monumental hurdle to climb. Have you not experienced that? Even the slightest act of godliness? What would be a, a quote-unquote slight act of godliness? How about helping somebody move? I mean, isn't that a, isn't that a good thing? Doesn't God want us to love our neighbor with, with deeds of kindness and mercy? Okay, so you have a free Saturday. You're available. But that's the problem. You had a free Saturday. You wanted to sleep in. Maybe you wanted to, to um, go and uh, hang out with some friends. You know this would be a good thing to do, to, to help these people in need. And now, now you're thinking of, of all the stuff you could actually get done at the house that you hadn't even thought of for the last three years. Suddenly they come to your mind. Well, I need to do this and this and that. Why is that? It's a slight thing to help somebody. And yet, we're so selfish, and, and our sin is so heavy, that even those slight acts of, of good works become monumental and mountainous hurdles to climb. Now, as Nehemiah is surveying the walls, interestingly, he does it in secret. He goes at night, verse 12, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. We might easily understand why Nehemiah would want to conceal his um, intentions from the enemies, but you notice he doesn't even tell the Israelites. That's weird. Look at verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were going to have to do the work. He says, I didn't even tell them what I'd been doing late at night. Why is that? Well, this has everything to do with the final obstacle that Nehemiah faced, and that was the, the apathy of the workers there. So he has these suspicious neighbors, he has this immense workload, and he has these apathetic workers. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, says that Nehemiah anticipates the obvious objection that a newcomer can have no idea of the task, right? If he just barges into Jerusalem and starts snapping orders at people, at the citizens, they'll say, who made you boss? Why should we listen to you? You don't know what it's like. You have no idea what we're dealing with. You don't know how hard it is. So he has to convince this people... And stir them up to do the work. And so, verse 17, we find a, a sort of locker room speech, right? Before the big game. Coach comes out, and, and he's, he's stirring up the players. That's what Nehemiah is doing, verse 17. He says, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He exposes their apathy. You've been, you've been content to be derided all these years Shame, he says. This is a shame. Have you forgotten that the city lies in ruins? I think over the decades they become accustomed to it. This is just the way it is now. We don't like it, but it's just, it's just the new norm. But he comes in and 
reminds them that this brings derision on God's people. How should the people of Jerusalem be viewed? Psalm 48 tells us in verse 2 that Jerusalem was supposed to be the joy of all the earth. Well, they had forgotten that. So he stirs them up. And he does this by telling them that his desire to rebuild the city, this is very interesting, that his desire to rebuild the city, as hopeless and as helpless as a cause, as that cause might seem, that desire didn't originate in him. It came from God. Psalm 48 also tells us that Jerusalem is to be the city of the great king. So it makes sense that that Nehemiah would say the great king himself has ordered her restoration. So you see, in verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. That's the first thing he does. This comes from God. This comes from the great king. But then interestingly, he doesn't stop there. He says, but there's another king involved too, the king of Persia, the emperor. He adds that. He says, and also I told them of the words that the king, Artaxerxes, had spoken to me. Now, he puts these in the right order. The first thing, the thing that really matters is this is a call from God. Why does he add the lesser important detail that the Persian king also has sent him? The reason is because the latter proves the former. What I mean by that is, just imagine, you know, you're Israel, you've been sitting in rubble for, for a whole generation. Some guy comes in and says, I've got big plans and trust me, God spoke to me. We're going to rebuild the city. And I say, yeah, right, sure, God spoke to you. And then he pulls out of his pocket this letter from the Persian king. He says, oh, and I have permission from Artaxerxes as well. What, what would that do? See, why would their captor king give permission for somebody to go back to, to Jerusalem, the city that they enslaved those people, and to rebuild their defense system? What king would do that? No king would do that. That's a crazy thing to do. So the only explanation is that this does come from God, and he changed the heart of the king. And so Nehemiah is proving, no, this is of God because I have this Persian permission slip. That's what's taking place here. And the people respond. He's won them over. They who had been sitting in the ash of Ash heap of despair, now shout as one, let us rise up and build. And there's strength in their hands for the good work. And so we see in the end of the story that it is actually God, not Nehemiah, who's the hero. The main character. Nehemiah faced suspicious enemies, an intense task, an apathetic workforce, but in the end he overcomes them all, not because of his intellect, not because of his charm, but because of the prosperous God that was blessing him. Look at what he says to the taunts of those neighboring enemies in verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. Now notice, read it again. Do you notice the logical progression there in verse 20? It's because God will prosper the work that the people rise to get to the work. They don't work at it on their own and hope by the end that it meets divine approval. No, they begin in the knowledge that God is able, that God's behind this, and so that makes them start. That 
the fact that God is able makes them willing. And it has to be that way. That is, that is gospel logic. We start with what, who God is and what he's done, and that informs who we are and what we do. The Christian message is that God is able and mighty to save, and so in response, we serve. We don't serve in the hopes that he'll save us. It's because he saves us that we serve him. That's gospel logic. I, I, I can't defeat sin, but neither do I have to. Christ did that for me. And now, with his power at work in my heart, I can live for him, from him. That's, that's what Nehemiah is doing. He is serving God out of the power that God's giving him. For God, from God. That's the Christian way as well. For Christ, from Christ. It's all over the New Testament. You don't need to turn to all of these, but maybe you want to write them down. But consider these passages from the pen of uh, Pastor Paul. Galatians 2.20. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's life is directed by the fact that Christ loved him and gave himself for him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this faith is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. But then he goes on to say, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, you see the logic. First, the indicative of what God has done and the imperative of what we do in response. By grace you've been saved, now you do good works for him. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ. For Christ. From Christ. 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I've believed and I am convinced that he is able, that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I have a lot of work to do, Paul says. My hope isn't in me and my ability to do it. My hope is in the one whom I believed, and I believe he's able. He is able to keep what I have to do until the end, to keep me even. And so what's your motivation, friends, for the mighty task that we all have of serving and glorifying God? We all have that task of, of saying no to sin, of saying yes to righteousness. What's your motivation? If it's anything apart from the power of God at work in you, you will utterly fail. That's just the reality we need to acknowledge. We may make some progress motivated by fear, maybe pride, maybe misaligned um, ambitions, but in the end we'll, we'll sputter out and we'll fail. Uh, you might even deceive others, but don't deceive yourself. Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to to his good pleasure. It is God who does this. Interestingly, Thomas Selfridge was sent to Panama with a letter that prompted him with the hope of future fame and glory, but in the end, you know what happened? He actually failed to find the proper route for that canal. It was discovered eight years later, not even by an American. Selfridge pulled himself up by his bootstraps to complete the work. He completed the survey, but he did not succeed at the work. I think that's probably uh, a helpful thing to keep in mind. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you might complete the work, but that doesn't mean you're going to succeed at it. 
Nehemiah completes and succeeds in his mission, as we're going to see. And why is that? It's because the prosperous hand of God was upon him. So when it comes to your progress in your spiritual life, you need God for success. You need Him. And when the task seems overwhelming, and the enemy too great, and the work too hard, start with this gospel truth. He is able. He is able. He is able. And He will surely do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You that it is profitable for us, for training us up in righteousness, that we would be fully equipped. Lord, we have a work to do. We need to be equipped for that work, and yet that equipping can never come from ourselves. We will falter. We will ultimately fail if we do not have You. So we do pray, Lord, that You would give us greater uh, trust in the work that you promised to do in our hearts and that we would get the gospel logic right and not, and not confuse it and, and reverse it. That it starts with what you promise. And from there, we are able uh, and willing and ready to go out to serve you. And we pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.